You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. 125 years ago, Swedish inventor Alfred Nobel established the award for contributions in physics, chemistry, medicine, and peace that have made the greatest benefit to humankind. Today, we replay a discussion with two Nobel Prize winners, two women scientists with Hawaii ties. Biochemist Jennifer Doudna is a genome editing pioneer. She's a University of California Berkeley professor and Hilo High School graduate. She's a co-winner of this year's Nobel Prize in Chemistry for her work in what's known as CRISPR technology. Astronomer Andrea Gez is a professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, and director of the UCLA Galactic Center Group. She spent a quarter century studying the black hole. Twenty of those years were using the Keck telescope on Mauna Kea. She shares the Nobel this year for physics. Jennifer starts off by telling us about her reaction when she heard she'd been awarded the Nobel Prize. Well, um, my first reaction was complete and utter shock. Um, I was, you know, awakened out of quite a deep sleep by a reporter who was calling, asking for my opinion about the, the Nobel. And I, I, uh, I realized I had missed some calls. I could see there were some messages on the phone. And I said, I, I just woke up. Uh, what's going on? I didn't have time to look at the news yet. And she said, oh, my gosh, you didn't realize that you won, you won the Nobel Prize. And uh, you can imagine someone telling you that at 3 in the morning. It's quite shocking. <laughs> And and so, what was it like for you, Andrea? Um, uh, similarly, just I was flabbergasted. Um, I was woken up by my home phone number, but um, so not a reporter. <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's thrilling, overwhelming. It's been uh, it's been a whirlwind. And so, it just must be a real kick in the pants. I mean, for your for your children, you know, to think, wow, <laughs> my mom rocks. Well, I have a, I have a, uh, this is Jennifer, I, I have a 17-year-old son, and uh, yeah, he's, you know, he's cool about it. He's, he's not over the moon, but, or he probably is, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't show me that, but um, I think he thinks he's cool. And Andrea, you have two teenage <laughs> sons as well? I'm just laughing, because, you know, my kids are the same age group. Uh, I have a 15-year-old and a 19-year-old, and the 15-year-old said, wow. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the 19-year-old had a few more words. <laughs> well, they're, you know, they're, they're really thrilled. Uh, they're very sweet. Yeah, well, I'm sure, yeah, it's going to take a while for, for this to sink in. I mean, I, I can remember as a kid, you know, uh, studying in school about um, Marie uh, Curie, right? I mean, ab- about her research as a scientist, as a physicist, and a chemist. Um, so, yeah, your name's going to be, uh, uh, you know, in the history books. Both of your names. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing! It's uh, it's it's extraordinary. Not something one ever plans on as a scientist, but it's it's really really exciting. Well, you know, at the beginning we talked about you know this prize and and how it's meant to you know uh, really uh, award folks who have contributed to the good of all humankind. And and Jennifer, you're working on something now dealing with the uh, COVID nineteen. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah, we are we are actively using CRISPR technology to develop a rapid test for for uh, the coronavirus, and we hope to have this ready to use in the next few months. Um, and uh, there's a very very active effort here in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, with a team of academic scientists working with many students um, at our universities who are trying to bring this uh, test 
to to uh, the point of that can you know, where it can be actually useful on our campus. So that's something that I've spent a lot of time on over the last few months. And very briefly, it works by taking advantage of the fundamental chemistry of CRISPR, which is a it's a bacterial immune system. So what the heck? We're using it to detect the virus in patient samples. And this would be what an inexpensive way then to be able to to test people. Yes, exactly. Inexpensive and fast. Now, uh, where is that in the process of being peer-reviewed? Well, um, there are uh, some manuscripts that are being either prepared or there's one that's in, in the sort of in the middle of peer review at the moment and has been made available publicly on the uh, preprint server called MedArchive, if anybody is interested. And um, um, importantly, this is something that we hope to use as a, a point-of-care test, so a way to test saliva or nasal swab samples from students and faculty at the UC Berkeley campus. And, you know, I don't know what it was like for uh, the two of you when you were growing up and, um, you know, messing around with science, where, you know, if you were you know, eight years old and said, gee, I want to win a you know, Nobel Prize for my work, or is it just the fact that you were just curious and uh, uh, just kind of followed your passion? Oh, gosh, this is Andrea. I, I was definitely not thinking... <laughs> Nobel Prize when I was little. <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to do. So, yeah, I'd be just following uh, my passion. And, yeah, same, this is Jennifer. Same for me. It's, it n never would have ever crossed my mind about winning a Nobel Prize. I just really liked chemistry and biology, and I, I have to thank my high school teachers at Hewell High School for, you know, instilling that curiosity about the world that I've pursued ever since. And I remember last time we talked, you, you had said you remembered a lecture from someone who came over from the med school uh, from, in Honolulu uh, to Hilo to talk about, I think, breast cancer. And that kind of got you thinking along those lines. And uh, I was hoping that, that we would be able to track that person down. We've, we've not been successful, <laughs> so I apologize for that. But, uh, um, you know, when I think at the time we talked, it was shortly after uh, when we talked a couple of years ago, you know, there was the news that broke about the Chinese scientists that had started to dabble with CRISPR and used it uh, to develop, uh, I guess there were a set of twins, designer children, and, and uh, he was highly criticized and I think fired from his job because of it. Yes, that's right. So, um, you know, this was this was the, one of my, my nightmare scenarios, honestly, about a technology that is otherwise so exciting and so promising, but also has risk and potential for misuse associated with it. And so when I heard about the work of this uh, scientist who had used CRISPR to change, alter DNA in two human embryos that were subsequently implanted and were born as twin girls, um, you know, this, this seemed uh, like a really extreme misuse of the technology. Yeah, I can imagine you were probably aghast. Uh, I think everybody just was uh, taken aback that this was going on, and and uh, you know we weren't aware of it. Exactly, but I think you know the good news is that the international community responded to that event. Um, I think with appropriate outrage, and as a result, as you mentioned, the scientist himself was you know was relieved of his position, and and I think has been has been punished and. 
And um, there's a very active international effort currently to make sure that that kind of misuse doesn't happen again. And I've not seen any updates on the twin girls or the third child um, that was involved in this case. Uh, you know, I, I know you serve on a committee that is looking, you know, to uh, improve the regulation of this technology. Um, have you heard anything more? I have not heard anything more about the health of those those girls, and certainly one hopes there that they are being uh, monitored appropriately. Um, but it's very hard to get information. I don't I don't know of anyone that's been uh, in touch with that team. And then during your years, uh, as you were, you know, doing your research, um, I don't know. Did did you find that because you were a woman that maybe you had to work harder? Uh, you know, I just don't know what the, the climate uh, was in the places where you uh, did your research. Well, I'm, uh, th again, this is Jennifer. I'm, I'm interested in uh, Andrea's um, response to this, too. But I, from, in my case, I, I would say that I don't, I don't really feel that I was, you know, actively discriminated against, although definitely there were times when um, I had naysayers, uh, you know, say, uh, well, you know, this, this won't work out or you, you probably won't be successful doing X, Y, or Z. But I think that's, that probably happens to everybody at some level. So I, I feel lucky that I had wonderful mentors, both men and women, at key moments in my life and my career when I had doubts about what I was doing and who were there to say, uh, keep doing it, you know, keep going, and you're on the right track. And I think everybody needs that kind of um, advice and mentorship at key moments. And then you share the prize with um, another woman. Yes, with Emmanuel Charpentier, my uh, collaborator. So she and I did the work together. We, we, it was a really fun, really wonderful project and collaboration, and I'm, I'm really delighted to, to be sharing this honor with her. And Andrea, um, talk about your experience. Oh, I think my answer is um, quite similar to Jennifer uh, in the sense that, you know, I guess I would say we live in a society that has certain ideas about what women can or cannot do. So, you know, it, it would be naive to think that you have one hasn't faced some naysayers. But um, like Jennifer, I've had um, the, the, the privilege of being raised in a family that was very supportive and encouraging of me per, to pursue my interests um, and teachers and mentors along the way. I guess I would say, you know, they're, they're, um, they're at every stage of my evolution, there's always been, the, you know, somebody who's had the audacity to say, you know, no, no, you can't do this because you're a girl. And I think that the thing that's, that's quite um, helpful about this having occurred so early in my life is that I got very used to ignoring when people say you can't do something. So in my work, this has um, become quite an advantage because there were times when people didn't believe our approaches would work. And I was pretty well trained at that point um, to sort of dig deep and believe in myself and um, go forward if I thought I, if I, thought I could. Well, I think it's important to bring this up because this is the year where we celebrate, you know, the anniversary of the uh, the right uh, for women to vote. Um, we just saw the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, who, uh, you know, wrote about how she faced discrimination. I think she hid her pregnancy uh, to get, uh, a, you know, a job in uh, in law. Uh, 
because a lot of those jobs were not open to women um, early on. Uh, and, you know, it, it, I think it's just important to say, okay, you know, what, what, can, what can women do? I think uh, uh, Ginsburg had said, you know, I think when there's nine women on the, on the Supreme Court, that, you know, that's when <laughs> there'll be enough. But, uh, you know, you, I guess you look at the, the Nobel Prize winners, and it's still, you know, a big deal when it's a woman. Yeah, Jennifer, well, I, I I feel that you know that I I look forward to the day when it's not unusual to have women win the prize, or you know in our case with chemistry, not unusual to have only women receiving the chemistry prize, which is the first actually this year. And Andrea, yeah, I think it's it's super important to have role models. I mean, I, I think um, we're of the generation that we benefited from so many people who came um, before us. But I think to get the recognition at this level really opens the door to encouraging that next generation of scientists who are curious about the world. If you're just joining us, this is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We're rebroadcasting a discussion we had with two 2020 Nobel Prize winners, biochemist Jennifer Doudna and astronomer Andrea Gez. We're not taking phone calls for today's show, but we do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback. Call 808-792-8217. Well, now you shared your award with uh, two men. Um, and I think when we last talked on the show, you talked about how you were in a race with uh, another team uh, studying the black hole. So how did that work out? Oh, well, I'm delighted to be sharing this prize with my long-term um, competitor, Reinhard Genzel, uh, from the Max Planck. And um, it's, uh, you know, competition is really good in science. It keeps you on your toes. Um, it allows uh, for different points of view. So I think over the 25 years that we've been at this, um, the science has really benefited from these two groups. Um, you know, it's a friendly competition, shall we say. Okay. Well, you know, uh, we had a shy caller on the line uh, who wanted to know um, who the role models of these two scientists are um, and, uh, you know, wonders if uh, that if you realize that, uh, you know, the two of you might be future uh, scientist role model as well. So who wants to go first on that? Go for it, Jennifer. Andrea, you go first. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, gosh. You know, role models. I was really fortunate. I was really interested in reading biographies um, of interesting women when I was in high school. So, in fact, I read quite a few on um, Marie Curie and Amelia Earhart. Um, so I think I was fascinated by strong women when I was young. And then um, in terms of role models, um, I had a wonderful high school teacher. She was one of my few female teachers uh, along the way in science. That was Judy King. Keene. And then um, in graduate school, um, one of my advisors was uh, Anila Sargent, who, you know, was just a, a real uh, mentor and supporter and role model. Jennifer? Oh, very interesting. Well, in my case, I would have to say my father was, I don't know if really a role model, but certainly he was somebody who was very dedicated to education and learning. He loved ideas. He was passionate about, you know, discussing ideas and he was a professor at the University of Hawaii, and throughout, you know, through my, my career until he passed away in 1995, he was always asking me what I was working on in the lab, and he really, you know, wanted to understand uh, the science that I was doing, which, you know, meant 
a lot to me. It meant the world to me. So there was that. And then, uh, like Andrea, I had some incredible uh, teachers along the way. My, my high school biology teacher, Marlene Hapai, who uh, I'm still in touch with Marlene. And, and, you know, they were both very encouraging of my interest in science, and I'm eternally grateful for that. And then in college, my biochemistry professor, uh, Sharon Panasenko at Pomona College, as well as my physical chemistry professor, uh, Fred Greenman, again, were both very encouraging and supportive as I was trying to, you know, figure out if I could really do chemistry and, and you know, what kind of career I wanted to have after college. And, you know, I, I know we've only got you for a little bit here, but um, any, I don't know, final thoughts uh, that you want to just convey to our listeners out there or to, you know, a, a young mind, you know, uh, who's just interested in science? Well, I always like to point out that, um, you know, I grew up in Hilo, and, um, I, you know, nobody, I didn't, I certainly did not know any female scientists when I was growing up. And so um, for me, you know, it was just, for me, it, you know, my interest was, was really just, you know, it was homegrown. <laughs> and, you know, I just, just loved, I knew I loved science. I wanted, I've always pursued my passion. So I, I, I like to point this out to students. I always felt like, you know, especially now looking back on it, I, I'm, I'm probably the, one of the least likely people to win a Nobel Prize in a way, um, you know, given, given, you know, sort of the, the, the background there. And so I, I just think that, for, for young students that are starting out, it's a wonderful career. It's really fun, and you meet so many interesting people. It's international. I, I've had you know so many colleagues and friends now that live all over the world that makes my work very, very interesting. So I, I couldn't encourage students more. It's a wonderful, a wonderful life to pursue. And if there was anything that you could change in order to get you know more young girls interested in going into these fields you know what would it be i'd like to see more empowerment of people who have been traditionally underrepresented in science and how do we do that i you know i'm not sure but my husband jamie kate who is a professor at uc berkeley like i am has started a, a program for bringing in more undergraduates uh, at you know at the undergraduate level um, to explore the STEM fields. And I think this is really key. And those students, when they come to Berkeley, are given opportunities to work in some of the world's best research labs and have, have the joy of discovery and working with some of the, the world's great scholars and scientists. So we're hoping to expand that program. And, in fact, that's how I will be using my Nobel money is to help uh, support it financially. Do you think we ought to start in the younger grades as well? I do. I think that's that's also very important uh, for sure. And, you know, making sure that kids know that um, there's a path forward. And like Andrea said earlier, I feel that the Nobel Prizes in a way are validating, you know, for 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 us, uh, certainly. And, and, you know, sort of showing students that their work will be appreciated and recognized at the highest levels, uh, no matter who they are or where they come from, if they do great work. All right. Well, uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, on your next trip back to Hawaii, um, uh, you're going to hear a lot from the community just, uh, you know, wishing you well uh, with uh, all your, your future work as you uh, try and come up with ideas on how to, how to battle COVID-19 and more. Uh, but we certainly thank you uh, for your time today. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Catherine. Great to talk to you. And, and uh, great to talk to you, too, Andrea. And congratulations. You too. Bye.
You've been listening to a discussion we had with biochemist Jennifer Doudna and astronomer Andrea Gez, two women scientists with Hawaii Ties who won Nobel Prizes this year. We won't be taking questions for this show, but you can give us your feedback by calling 808-792-8217 or send us an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs in finance, marketing, and information systems. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. HPR brings you vital information from the islands and around the world. It brings you music that enriches and uplifts. And it keeps you company, providing moments of levity and joy along with the news. Whatever your day looks like, stay connected at home with your smart speaker. It's easy. Just say Play KHPR for HPR 1 or Play KIPO for HPR 2. You're tuned to member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. KHPR Honolulu, KKUA Wailuku, KANO Hilo, KHPH Kailua Kona, KIPL Lihue, and KJHF Kualapu'u. We're back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You've been listening to Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. 5, Emperor. It was performed by pianist Igor Levitt, conductor Stefan Deneuve, and the Royal Stockholm Philharmonic Orchestra at the 2020 Nobel Prize concert earlier this month. This hour, we've been replaying a discussion we had with two Nobel Prize-winning women scientists. We continue the conversation with astronomer Andrea Gez, who won this year's Nobel Prize in Physics. You know, I have to tell you, when I woke up this morning, uh, you know, I have a view out my window, and uh, there was a twinkling light in the sky. And I don't know, you know, if it was, uh, you know, Venus or Mars or a a very bright star, but... um, you know, I just thought of the nursery rhyme, twinkle, twinkle, little star, you know, how I wonder what you are. And, you know, it, it's I think that curiosity, um, you know, that we try and, and, and nurture and foster in our children, you know, just to be curious about the world and, and wonder, you know, how things work and why things are the way they are. I mean, do you remember thinking about that when you looked up at stars as a kid? Absolutely. In fact, I remember it was the early moon landings that got me looking up and thinking about um, the universe and understanding the scale and getting curious. Yeah. Astronomy and astrophysics has has the wonderful attribute of being accessible um, by lots of people. And I, I saw a clip online uh, this week that, that when you were little, you were thinking, oh, well, maybe I'd want to be an astronomer or a dancer. 
yeah, I was not um, singular in my pursuit of uh, math and science as a kid. Um, I had a lot of interests. But certainly by the time I hit high school, I knew I had uh, a lot of aptitude for math and science and was interested in those fields. And is there anything that you would like to see um, to help nurture young minds? Oh, gosh, I've always felt that um, one of the most important things is uh, visible role models, because I think if you can see people who look like you or who are different, a diversity, you know, a diversity of types of people, that, um, that encourages um, a diverse group of people into the, into the field. Um, so I think visibility of a diverse um, group of scientists is, is super important. And uh, as far as maybe a program that you might have been involved in, you know, either in, you know, in high school uh, or in college, um, I don't know, is there a shout out to, uh, to anyone um, in any of those programs or something that you just felt really uh, helped you? Oh, gosh. Um, I guess in, um, in graduate school, I think is, I actually set up with some friends a big sister, little sister program for women at Caltech, and it paired um, graduate uh, women with undergraduate um, women students. And I think that networks are, are really important. Just um, it's sort of it's just like one step up or down mentoring. You know, building those communities um, of support are is another important aspect of helping people succeed. I mean, helping anybody succeed. That that it doesn't matter if you're a minority or not in a field. Um, having that network of people who are who are supportive or that you can turn to for advice. And then when when you had your children, how was that juggling, um, you know, a very a busy job, you know, with your research? Oh, there's nothing like um, being busy to focus your mind. Um, so you definitely cut out. You become very clear about what your priorities are. It just requires, I think, when they're little, a lot of discipline uh, in terms of how you juggle these different parts of your life. But I'd also say... It also introduced me to people I wouldn't have come into contact with otherwise. I mean, I, I mean having kids is just an amazing uh, part of life. Um, and um, But e even the way it interacts with you professionally, I think, is interesting. I sent my kids to daycare at UCLA, and through this daycare group, I came into contact with faculty across the university. And, you know, it inspired... Um, collaboration and networks that I would not have otherwise had. So it's like a lot of things in life. You know, every my favorite saying is every challenge is an opportunity. So um, I think I've grown a lot from just having these two different disparate parts of my life. Yeah, it really helps you with time management, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, does it ever. <laughs> You know, I, yeah, looking back, I, I think when my daughter was young, you know, she was involved in dance, and, and that's, I think, the one thing that I miss now that she's grown up is, you know, the, the, the mothers that were there for all the dance programs. But, yeah, they're just a, become a, a, a nice support system for you as you try and juggle, you know, career and raising children. And meeting people from really different walks of life. I mean, I think, you know, when we're in our careers, we tend to meet people who, who are thinking the same way as uh, we do. So through the kids, you actually get out of your bubble.
You know, when we were talking with Jennifer, you know, we talked about the ethics of uh, some of the research uh, that's being done, uh, you know, as a rift on the CRISPR technology. But how does that work for astronomy? You know, what are the ethical issues that, uh, that uh, you see out there in the field? I think in science and in anything, there's always ethical issues. There's ethical issues about how we deal with one another. There's ethical issues about how we deal with um, our data, ethical issues about, um, I mean, they're very, um, I mean, in her case, it's very uh, clear cut. Um, But I think overall ethics comes in, um, in a lot of different arenas. And I think the thing that keeps me focused and how, um, is just to focus on the science, to focus on um, you know, being true to trying to understand um, the scientific question that you're after, uh, because I think things get much more complicated when you get wrapped up in things like uh, recognition or who's first or a whole sort, all sorts of other very human sentiments. Well, I think when we you know, last had our discussion and you had just, I think, arrived, gotten off the plane, you arrived from California and we're heading up the mountain, I think, to go do some time on the Keck telescope. And you talked about, you know, uh, you had a, a competitive team also studying the black hole. Uh, and so I worried, you know, that, that, you know, does someone have to lose? Is, is it, you know, getting there first, getting the credit? You're very fortunate because, you know, your competitors are sharing in this award, um, but you know, how is it? You know, when you know that uh, so much time and energy is vested in this research. Oh gosh. Well, I guess I have a couple of things to say. I mean, I, I feel very grateful that the Nobel uh, Prize Committee recognized the contribution of both groups because the two groups have really worked very hard and very long on this. But I guess in science, I don't, I don't see that there are losers in this um, because. What you're after is an understanding, and you know we're, I, I just feel incredibly fortunate to be um, able to work on these questions, to be able to do research that moves our understanding of of science forward, to be able to train the next generation of scientists in um, how one approaches um, basic science. And then what does this prize mean? Uh, I don't know if that gets you more time on the telescope or not. Oh, it's an interesting thing. I mean, what it, you know, literally what it means, of course, is that your work is honored and highlighted. So the importance of a certain area of science is highlighted. The technology that goes into it is highlighted. So I, I, I'm, I'm very excited about that. I think it gives you lots of opportunity to pursue the work further, um, you know, take that work to the next level of scientific discovery. So I'm excited both about the opportunities and also just the responsibilities that come with this kind of um, recognition. I think one has a, an obligation to, to be um, a good steward uh, for science uh, um, and, and the encouragement of that next generation. So do you have other proposals uh, already in the queue uh, to spend more time on Keck? Uh, yes, I have lots of proposals in the queue for the future of Keck. So Keck is, you know, Keck is just an amazing facility. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited about, uh, I've, I've actually got one that's under review now, so I'm certainly hoping um, that it will be accepted. 
And I'm also excited about the future of the 30-meter telescope. I mean, I know it's um, certainly it's a controversial project in Hawaii, but I also hope that we find a path forward, um, find a path that uh, recognizes um, the, the various uh, viewpoints. It's complicated. It's like science. It's complex, and it's important to have those um, hard conversations to figure out how to um, do things um, in a way that's, that's, uh, that works for everyone. And I think when we last talked, you mentioned that we had a Hilo boy that was working on your team, which is great. Yeah, I'm so thrilled. Devin, too. He, um, he in fact, just graduated this summer. He did a fabulous job with his Ph.D., and now he's a postdoc in the group. Um, and it, it was... Uh, it was such a treat to have somebody who grew up in Hawaii on the team. I think he gave us insight into Hawaii um, that we hadn't had before. And I guess, you know, what would you like to say, you know, because if you've com- been coming here for 20 years, you know, you know, the the uh, the tension that has been building, you know, with, uh, you know, the native uh, Hawaiian community. A number of folks feel very strongly about, you know, what should or shouldn't be up on the mountain you know, I've been coming out to work on the top of Mauna Kea since 1994. And it's interesting because as technology has progressed, uh, it's now possible to observe from the mainland. But I feel really strongly about continuing to come to um, Hawaii to do the work because that's the only way that you help yourself understand what's really happening in the community and to get a sense. And things. Um, obviously, the sentiment has changed a lot over the course of the last 25 years. But I guess like science, I think it's important to have hard conversations um, because that's how you get to a greater understanding. Um, so I guess I welcome, I welcome the hard conversations. Um, I, I want to understand and I want to be a, um, you know, part of figuring out a solution. Yeah, I know the groups are, are, some are concerned because they're saying, you know, in, in some stories they're painted as being anti-science, and they say that's not it, you know. Um, but have you yourself been involved in any of those community discussions? I've been involved in some discussions, um, and I've certainly been part of the 30-meter telescope project for a long time. In fact, I can remember I joined it when I was pregnant with my oldest son, Um so it's been a it's been a long journey, and I think the project is 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 super interested in understanding and has um, again I, you know I, I I obviously hear more on one side than another, but I have been interested in um, hearing and hearing the complexity and the evolution of the complexity because um, you know we live in a world that's constantly evolving and so you know what worked. 50 years ago may not work today. I mean, I guess that's a, a long way of saying these are hard conversations. It's important, but it's important to have them and important to listen. You've been listening to a discussion we had with astronomer Andrea Gez, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics this year for her study on black holes. We won't be taking questions for this show, but you can give us your feedback. Call 808-792-8217 or send us an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We now take you back to the conversation where Gaz tells us how her research has confirmed Albert Einstein's theory of relativity.
Yeah, um, so what we've done is to come up with the best evidence to date for the existence of the supermassive black hole and uh, supermassive black holes, which is um, black holes are one pre uh, prediction of Einstein's theory of general relativity. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the, the evidence has increased uh, from this work by a factor of 10 million. So it's not just a, it's a, it's a, it's an enormous step forward. And so as far as the, the time on the telescope that you folks have, have uh, spent, you know, you had mentioned that some of this can be done remotely, and I did see a video online where, yeah, you've got, you know, classes set up with all the computers, and, and you can, and, uh, you know, you, you're able to use the, the, the data that you can see on your screens. It's true. <laughs> um. So there's also, I mean, we, we used to go to the summit for collecting the data, then it was Waimea, and now um, we can do it from home. Are there any drawbacks to that, though? Oh, yeah. So I'd say each place has pros and cons. Um, so I would say um, the, the way we observe today, which um, is often from UCLA, um, has the pro that you can involve many more students. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it has the pro of being um, a great way of involving and training more students than you would otherwise train. But of course, you're not um, getting them to Hawaii and uh, getting them more deeply connected to the community and more deeply connected to the technology. So that's the drawback of not going to Hawaii. So we try, we, we, we maintain a, a combination of going out to Hawaii and, um, and, and UCLA. We try to get the best of both worlds. You know, with the physical distancing uh, that we're having to do here because of COVID, you know, I think they have reduced the number of scientists that are uh, going up and down the mountain or even at the Waimea facility. Yeah, uh, tremendously. So it's been a huge impact on um our ability to work, but the Tech Observatory has done an amazing job in uh, making it possible for us to continue to collect data even through these um, difficult times. And we do have an email from uh, a listener, Francine from Kula. Uh, she writes in that she appreciates how the show uh, is helping to encourage young minds into STEM. She wants to know how STEM involvement in our youth, especially our young girls uh, and women, has changed from when, you know, you were getting into the field. Can you talk about that, Andrea? Sure. Um, you know, I think it's interesting in terms of looking at the um, ebbs and flows of, of social change. Um, I feel like I grew up at a, a time when there was a, a lot of emphasis on, you know, it was kind of that, that, that moment of you can, you can do anything. And I almost feel like we took a step back <laughs> from that. Um, it became more more conservative, but today there is a tremendous investment and consciousness of the importance of encouraging um, diverse groups of, of scientists into the field, and a lot more invested in giving access to the next generation to help them understand and explore their their own interests. Do you think there should be I don't know more scholarships, you know, to get kids involved in say in, in summer space camps or uh, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I just think that, you know, there, there are just a number of, uh, you know, public and private schools here in Hawaii that if they had, uh, I don't know, uh, an expansion of what's out there, 
to be able to interact with scientists like you, you know, that that might, uh, you know, like I said, raise the profile of, of uh, the role models that are out there. Yeah, I actually, you know, it's sort of funny that you asked this. I actually have some um, mixed feelings um, because there's so much pressure these days on kids um, to know what they want to do and to grow up fast in a sense. Well, grow up sort of intellectually fast. And I almost um, think that there are a lot of things that can help kids thrive in the competitive world. I guess with my own kids, I haven't been overly anxious to get them involved in these programs because I want I want them to be kids and to fully explore their you know life as a kid, and including sports. I think sports is actually such an important part of kids' development. It's one of the few arenas where kids really learn how to struggle and fail and play again. You know, in academia, we're so focused on, um, there's such a focus these days on getting good grades. And there isn't really a mechanism for kids to learn how to do some serious face plants and recover, or recover from them in a way that um, sports does actually so well. So while I think those 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 programs are, are wonderful, I also have a certain wariness of of forcing kids to almost to choose too early. It's almost like don't don't forget to fully be a kid and explore, you know, what you what you like to do. Yeah, maybe if the, if the way to to frame it is, you know, it's a dress. Try it on. You know, I might not yeah. fit, you know, but at least, <laughs> at least you, you, you know, can experience, you know, or get a sample of, of, of what it's like, you know, what you like and yeah. don't like. Absolutely. I mean, those programs are great. Um, and I think um, they're, they're especially great at the college level when kids have enough of a background um, to get, to get involved in, in the research. You know, I was reading an article where someone said, you take the twinkle out of stars. What did that mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, the atmosphere in the Earth's atmosphere um, blurs our images of astronomical sources. So large telescopes in particular, um, in principle, can, can see fine detail except for the um, blurring effects of the Earth's atmosphere. And so I work on technologies that allows you to overcome the blurring effects of the Earth's atmosphere, or I guess romantically you can say it takes the twinkle out of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, well, I think uh, the, the both of you, you know, with Jennifer Doudna and yourself, that you, you, you have sparkle. Uh, you know, obviously you wouldn't have uh, risen to the level uh, where you're at today. Was there anything that you think that your parents did to kind of nurture your interest in science? Absolutely. My parents were both um, very supportive. I, I remember in particular my dad loved to create almost math problems, well, math problems and logic problems. They were just puzzles. And for me, that was an early um, encouragement into these fields. So it was fun. It was just an inquiry-based uh, thing. But I, I feel very, very fortunate to have grown up with parents and teachers who, who were incredibly supportive of, of, of my interest. So are they still around? What did they think when, you know, you, you won the prize? Oh, well, unfortunately my father passed away, but my mom's still alive, and she was, you know, she's just thrilled to bit. She's definitely the proud mom. 
and she's, you know, such an inspiration um, to me. I'm really, um, I feel very fortunate. And do you think uh, of one of your, one or both of your sons will, will go into science? I have no idea what they'll do at the end of the day. Um, my oldest son is currently in engineering. Uh, he's interested in renewable energy at the moment, but, you know, life is long. You never know where your kids are going to end up, but I really want to, I really want to encourage them to find their, find their own passion. Yeah, I guess that, that's the best advice, right? Find your passion and, and then just go for it. Okay. And a- any final thoughts? We probably have about a minute left, but. Um, uh, nothing except I feel incredibly grateful and privileged to have worked for 25 years uh, on Mauna Kea. It's, it's just an amazing place to work. And uh, uh, how soon do you think you might come back? Will it be before the end of the year or, or next year? Oh, I'm hoping this coming spring if, if uh, things are back under control with COVID. You've been listening to a discussion we had with astronomer Andrea Ghez and biochemist Jennifer Doudna. Nobel Prize winners usually attend an award ceremony and deliver a lecture in Stockholm, Sweden. But with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, the two stayed in California. However, they still delivered their Nobel lectures virtually. Here's a clip from Jennifer Doudna's talk that evening. In research done a couple of years ago, Janice Chen, a student in my lab at the time, showed that another family of enzymes called Cas12 also have the ability to cleave single-stranded molecules, in this case, single-stranded DNA, upon recognition of a double-stranded DNA target. And in this experiment, what Janice Chen showed is that the Cas12 protein, upon recognition of a double-stranded DNA, is able to cleave single-stranded Um, molecules of DNA showing very rapid degradation of a circular single-stranded DNA molecule in this experiment, which is an activity, a biochemical activity, that we do not detect for Cas9. And working with a colleague, Joel Polevsky, at University of California, San Francisco, we were able to use this Cas12 activity for detection of the uh, human papillomavirus in human patient samples and even to distinguish between two different strains of the human papillomavirus. And so this told us that not only could CRISPR-Cas enzymes be useful for detection, but they could also be useful for specificity in figuring out what type of viral signal might be present in a patient sample. And of course, in the current uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 pandemic that has become a worldwide human health issue, we and and others have been using this type of CRISPR-Cas detection to identify samples in in patient saliva or in patient nasal swabs, and to do so very quickly, ultimately we hope with a readout that will involve a simple mechanism with a cell phone that can record the results of these diagnostic tests and help people everywhere to screen themselves against this virus and importantly provide a mechanism for future pandemic preparedness because of the programmability of the CRISPR-Cas enzymes, which is a fundamental property of their biology and their ability to be harnessed as technology. That was Jennifer Doudna talking about the CRISPR technology and how it's being used during the pandemic. Let's listen to a clip from Andrew Gez's lecture. The work that is being recognized is a 25-year-long project that I began when I first started my faculty position at UCLA. 
UCLA was my dream job because it gave me access to the newly constructed Keck telescopes, which are the largest telescopes in the world. And I was interested in developing new ways of using this telescope to study black holes. I like to begin my lectures with the question, how do you observe something you can't see? This is an essential question if you want to find and study black holes, because black holes are objects whose pull of gravity is so intense that nothing can escape them, not even light. The story that I would like to tell you today is how we've been able to find a supermassive black hole at the center of our own galaxy. And this has provided us with the best evidence yet that these exotic objects really do exist, but it's also provided us with a wonderful laboratory for studying the fundamental physics of black holes, and in particular, how black holes warp space-time, and what role black holes play in the formation and evolution of galaxies. While the black holes are relatively exotic objects um, and require pretty exotic physics to properly describe them, the way I want you to think of a black hole today is an object whose mass is confined to zero volume. So despite the fact that I'm going to talk about objects that are supermassive, and I'll get back to what that means, they have no finite size. So what does this mean? This means that if we think about density, which is mass divided by volume, density goes to infinity. And, and in physics, any time you have a number going to infinity, this is known as a singularity, which is equivalent to a giant red arrow that says you don't have your description of the physical world quite right here. Um, so in fact, this is what makes black holes so interesting because it points the way forward to understanding a deeper uh, way of thinking about physics. Um, today, we don't know how to make the world of um, general relativity, which describes gravity near um, uh, highly gravitating objects. So that's what Einstein is so famous for. Work together with the study of quantum mechanics, which is the study of things that are very small. And black holes are both. They have tremendous gravity and they're um, infinitesimally small. So when we understand what a black hole is, we'll be able to um, presumably make these two fields work together. But in the meantime, fortunately, there is an abstract um, size that we can think about that's uh, quite important to the studies of black holes. And this is known as the Schwarzschild radius. And this is the size that if you can compress an object down to its Schwarzschild radius, and in fact, every object has a Schwarzschild radius, gravity will overcome all other known forces, forcing the object to become the infinitesimally small object of a black hole. So if we think about the Earth, and we could figure out how to squeeze it down to the size of a sugar cube, it would become a black hole. Now, fortunately, the Schwarzschild radius is actually quite simple to figure out. It just scales with mass. So if we were to look at a more massive object like the sun and scale it down to UCLA's campus, it would become a black hole. So this notion is important because it not only defines what a black hole is, but it uh, gives us um, a way of demonstrating or proving that a black hole exists. We need to show that there's some mass confined to at least within its Schwarzschild radius to claim a black hole. That was Andrea Gaz talking about her research into black holes. The full lectures from Jennifer, Andrea, and this year's Nobel winners are available at NobelPrize.org. Well, that's it for today's show. We'd like to thank our guests, Andrea Gaz and Jennifer Doudna. And we thank you, the listener, for joining us. 
What did you think of the discussion? You can give us your feedback by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Send us an email at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. If you want to listen back to today's show, check out the conversation podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.